Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Michael David Lucas, whose latest novel is The Last Watchman of Old Cairo, also the author of The Oracle of Stamboul. Michael David Lucas is at... UC Berkeley. I work in the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. And you do teach writing, though. I do teach writing also. Where do you teach writing? Mostly at USF. We'll talk about your earlier career and how you got into writing, but let's start by talking a little about The Last Watchman of Old Cairo. The book has three distinct sections. One takes place late 1800s, one around 1100 or so, and then one around 2000. I understand in an essay that you wrote that that section was originally going to be contemporary, set in Cairo, but then came Arab Spring. Is that right? Yeah. In the middle of the process of writing this book, maybe about three years into it, the whole Arab Spring happened. And it really forced me to reckon with the question of how current events affect a novel in progress. And at the time, I would tell people I'm writing a book set in Cairo and everyone would ask, you know, oh, is it an Arab Spring novel or, oh, you know, how are you going to incorporate the Arab Spring? And so I felt forced to kind of think about this question. And the answer I came to is that, first of all, I'm not the guy to write the great Arab Spring novel. I did live in Cairo, but it was in the year 2000. And so I came back afterwards, but didn't really have the experience of, you know, being in Tahrir Square, anything like that. And so, first of all, I just didn't have the sort of authority to write that novel. And as time passed, I realized that it's the novelist's job to reflect current events, but also to sort of take the long view of history. So I didn't want to get too caught up into sort of what was happening in the current moment. And as we've seen with the example of the Arab Spring, things have changed quite a bit in the past few years since that happened. You know, Mohammed Morsi took power and then he was deposed. And now we're sort of back to the new boss who's very much like the old boss, as it were, and who just got reelected, you know, with 98 percent of the vote or something like that. If you write it using your memory of a decade and a half ago, things change. So by bringing it back to when you were there, the accuracy remains. You don't have to worry about new buildings. You don't have to worry about new buildings. Although when I went back to sort of fact check, you know, the streets and the sensations of what it's like to be in the city, I was constantly sort of second guessing myself. Like, you know, some buildings, you know, they've been around for 100 years. They were there 10 years ago. But other things, you don't know, like, was that bank there 10 years ago? Was this under construction however many years ago? But, you know, at a certain point, you just have to abandon all hope of getting everything right because we're writing fiction. (laughs) When you were working on um, Oracle of Stamboul, was Last Watchman of Old Cairo that story in your mind at the time, or did that come after you finished the book? 
I actually started writing a book about Cairo about 18 years ago after I lived in Cairo. Came back to college and was really fired up about, in particular, the Jewish community of Cairo and became sort of obsessed with it and wanted to write a book based on one of these Romana Clef type lightly veiled autobiographies about an American Jew living in Cairo. But I kept trying to write it and kept failing at it and eventually sort of set aside the book and started working on a new project, which ended up being the Oracle of Stambul. Then when I was coming to the end of the Oracle of Stambul, I had an experience where I got on a plane and sat next to this very distinguished looking South Asian lady who was very talkative. On a plane flight, I like to zone out, put my headphones on, but she really wanted to talk and ended up being a really amazingly interesting lady who moved from Calcutta to Madison when she was 18. And in the course of the conversation, she told me about her distant relatives who were Bengali Muslims who were watchmen of the synagogue in Calcutta and had passed the watch from generation to generation. And that idea reminded me of the book I was trying to write about Cairo. And I immediately knew that this was the sort of missing piece that I'd been banging my head against the wall trying to find for for all those years. And so I excused myself to go to the bathroom for a minute and wrote down the outline of of the book on on a little cocktail napkin. Does the Ibn Ezra temple exist in Cairo? Yeah, yeah, it does. It's also known as the Ben Ezra Synagogue. It's been there for a thousand years. Was that part of the original idea to focus in on that and this area inside the temple called, I guess, the Geniza? Yeah. What got me interested in particular in the Jews of Cairo was coming upon this, this synagogue. I had been living there for a few months at the time and fell in love with the city, but was always kind of a little unsure about how my Jewishness and American Jewishness fit into my place in the city. And then seeing the synagogue that had been there for a thousand years, I realized, hey, these things are not mutually exclusive in the way that one might believe living in the 21st century. That caused me to research the synagogue more and I found out about this amazing cache of documents that was kept up in the attic of the synagogue for hundreds and hundreds of years and then, quote unquote, discovered in the late 19th century and brought to Cambridge. So that part of the story is more or less nonfiction. That part is mostly true. The 19th century plot line is based entirely on fact, and almost all of the characters are historical personages. Michael David Lucas, in... The Last Watchman of Cairo, these three segments, the segment involving the first Watchman taking place in 1100 is close third person. The section involving the two women who are real is more or less closer to omniscient. I like to think of it as plural close third person. And the other (laughs) section is first person. Why did you decide to create that particular structure? The idea around the structure of the book in general was to have a kind of polyphonic situation in which the narrators were all playing off each other, harmonizing with each other. The idea being that I wanted to create a sense of music much like the multi-ethnic society that I was depicting. And I thought, 
you know, if they're all close third person or they're all omniscient, you don't have that kind of interplay of difference. I originally actually wanted to have different fonts for each of the different sections to sort of distinguish the voices even further. But the publisher said no. <laughs> I, I'm glad you pointed that out because that was an important thing to me, these different points of view and different perspectives and to have an actual formal difference in addition to the voices being different. The character of Joseph who goes back in modern times, uh, he's half Egyptian, half Jewish. I would guess that the Jewish part allows you to look at the world through that perspective, but the Egyptian part means he could be involved in society in a way that you couldn't be? Mm. Well, he's actually totally Egyptian. Yeah, he's got this sort of mixed heritage. Joseph was a difficult character for me to write because I often write characters that are really different than myself, and he's sort of the closest I've ever written. I mean, he's the same age. He's got a lot of the same interests. He has a somewhat similar personality as me, and yet, you know, he's got all these really important differences. You know, he's half Muslim. He's of Egyptian heritage. He's gay. He grew up in Santa Fe as opposed to in Berkeley. And so I found that in the process of writing him, I was getting a little bit too close. And at a certain point, I had to step back and say, Joseph is his own person. He may be very similar to me. He may have a lot of the same life experiences, but he's his own person with his own wants and desires and personality. And I have to do what I can to help him be who he is and foster that. At what point did you decide that he would be gay? He was always who he was from the get-go. He was always half Jewish and half Muslim. He was always gay from the moment I kind of conceived of him. And so the issue was not, should he be this, should he be that, but more, how do I render him in the truest way possible? I could understand the half and half. Why gay? I don't know. Ask the writing gods. I mean, I think that if I'm going to, like, analyze my own subconscious that came up with this, I think that it creates a sort of natural conflict with his dad. And it also creates a way to access Egyptian society that is maybe outside the norm. Because there is a vibrant gay subculture in Egypt. It's very much below the radar. One thing I discovered, how little I actually know about Cairo and how little any of us really know other than there's Cairo, there's a river. In Cairo, there's the square. And on the other side of the river are the pyramids. But unless you've been there, there's very little about Cairo itself. Did you notice that in doing your research? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously Egyptian writers who write very beautifully, but in terms of American or Western writers writing about Cairo, there there aren't that many. Luckily, we have some beautiful Egyptian writers in translation. I mean, Naguib Mahfouz is obviously the giant of Egyptian literature. I really love Ala Laswani, who wrote The Yakubian Building and Chicago, which is actually set in Chicago. So not really a rendition of Cairo. But I think that The Yakubian Building really gets Cairo in all of its sublime, difficult 
beautiful, decrepit glory. The original title of the book was The 43rd Name of God, and that transitioned to The Last Watchman. What book was The 43rd Name? Why did you change the name? It was a conversation with the publisher. I think that there was a couple of marketing reasons why The 43rd Name of God, I think they said, felt like a nonfiction book. Involved a little bit too much explaining, but I'll do the explaining because I really still like that title. The idea is that Joseph's last name and Ali's last name, El Rakab, means the watcher. There's a tradition in Islam that God has 99 different names, all of which are the attributes of God. The 43rd in some lists is El Rakab. And I really love this idea, which is actually, there's another sister idea in Judaism around the names of God and the different attributes of God. Because that's really what the book is about, is that we're all human, maybe in slightly different manifestations. And our relationship with God, as varied as it might be, I think is uniform or has some sort of uniform seed to it. But they told you to change it. There was a whole back and forth. I did a whole survey monkey survey with my friends. and <laughs> This name is certainly appropriate for the book. Definitely, definitely. It's not like they slapped some crazy name on there that has nothing to do with the book. Michael David Lucas, did you do any research on 11th century Cairo? I did, actually. One of the wonderful things about this Geniza, the cache of documents in the synagogue, is that it gives scholars an incredibly rich picture of 11th century Cairo, and particularly the Jewish community in 11th century Cairo. There's a number of really wonderful books written about the community, but in particular, there's one called A Mediterranean Society by S.D. Gatin. I'm probably mispronouncing his last name, but it's a six-volume work about basically the daily life of this community in the 11th, 12th, and I think 13th centuries. And so it's sort of like a novelist's dream and also nightmare. You know, you can look up basically any detail about life in medieval Cairo, but so can any Amazon reviewer <laughs> wants to. Did you mostly stick to online? Did you go to the UC library for that? I have the book, and I did go to the UC library and checked out all the books that I could find about 11th century Cairo, and particularly the Jewish community. Were there any moments where you found something that you went, aha, this is something I can put in the book? I confess that I didn't read through the whole six volumes. I mostly just sort of skimmed, but I did skim through the whole thing. And so many times I would come upon, oh, they used clay pots for storing food, or, oh, their beds were mats that they stored in the side of the sitting room, or all these details. And I think more than anything, it was an issue of how can I put all the things that I've learned in the book? As with, I think, many writers, I sort of crammed in a lot at the beginning. And then I was like, no one cares about these details. You know, you want to create a sense of the world and a sense of the world that is accurate, but you don't want to burden the reader with research. One of the issues is balancing necessary exposition with keeping the story and characters moving. And it seems in a lot of historical novels, finding that mix is really hard. Yeah, yeah. 
what I always tell my students when I'm talking about world building, which is relevant for any writer, is that your characters, and to a certain extent your narrator, depending on what type of perspective you have, are living inside the world that you're creating. And so a lot of what you might explain to a friend is second nature to them. You know, if you're writing a book about 2018, you don't have to say, there are these things that people hold in their hands and they send little text messages to each other and they pop up in little bubbles and, you know, because that's the world that we live in. And so you need to have your characters live in the world that you've created as well. A couple of more questions about The Last Watchman. One of which is the involvement of an obscure Torah scroll. Did that scroll exist? I don't know whether that scroll existed. It is a real myth. How'd you find that? That was a sort of an aha moment, actually. I found it in Gershom Shalom's book on Jewish mysticism. And it may just be in a footnote, or it may actually be another book, but I remember when I found it, I knew immediately, like, ah, I have to put this in my novel somehow. And it a really nice metaphor in some ways, I think, for the themes of the book, because Ezra the scribe was trying to write this perfect book. And he was also interested in, in addition to cleansing the text, he was interested in cleansing Jewish blood and weeding out all the intermarried Jews. And so in some ways, he represents this alternate force of mono-ethnic desires as opposed to the multi-ethnic world that I was describing. In an interview that was conducted for Oracle of Stambul, you talked about your own influences, and one of them is what you call historical fabulism. Saramanga you mentioned, and Gunter Grass, and Salman Rushdie. It's not quite magic realism. It's sort of hints at magic realism, but it is sort of on this border where it is and isn't fantasy. Was that deliberate in this book? That was deliberate in both the books. And I think someone like Rushdie is often writing in a fully fantastical mode. You know, magic is acknowledged and real in the world. And that's great. I love books like that. For my own work, I'm really interested in the possibility of magic, which almost, I think, is more highly charged. I want to write books that could be real, could be the world that we live in, and yet still have magic. Because I do think that there is a possibility of magic in this world. The flip side is that I was really inspired recently reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Nobel Prize speech, in which he, at the beginning of it, lays out a whole litany of crazy-seeming facts and then says, all of these actually happened. You, meaning the Western European intelligentsia, whatever, have called me magical realism, but I'm writing about history that is absurd and the absurdity of imperialism. And so, yeah, I really love that idea and... You know, I'm not writing about imperialism in the same way that he is, but I do think that there's an absurdity and a sort of magic to the past. Michael David Lucas, let's talk a little about your career. From looking at your biography, you have done a lot of traveling. You've lived in Cairo. You've spent time in Istanbul. 
which is where Oracle of Stamboul originated. You were deported in Tashkent. What happened? They just wouldn't let you in when you handed in your passport? It's this whole long story. I was in, living in Tunisia at the time. They didn't have an Uzbek embassy, so the people who I spoke to at the Russian embassy told me, oh, just go to Istanbul. You'll be able to get your visa there to Uzbekistan. And I found the address for the embassy. I think it was in the Lonely Planet or maybe online. And literally went to the street, walked up and down the street maybe a dozen times and just could not find this embassy. Maybe it had moved. I don't know. Maybe it was a figment of someone's imagination. And so I talked my way onto the plane. I had a letter from my girlfriend at the time who was doing the Peace Corps there. And I thought I was going to be able to charm them (laughs) into letting me into the country. And they were just really not having it. I was lucky that nothing worse happened to me. I had to go through this kind of weird part of the airport where I went from arrivals to departures and staged a little sit-in because I wasn't able to talk to anyone. I eventually talked to a foreign service officer who was just like, I can't help you. I'm sorry. (laughs) And then I got back on the plane and went back to, to Turkey. But the upside of that whole story is that that's where the seed of the Oracle of Stambul came was after being deported. When you were growing up, you grew up in Berkeley. Yep. Did you think about being a writer? I did. You know, I was really actually into math when I was younger. I wanted to be a computer programmer. And sometimes imagine, like, what my life would be like. Probably have a much nicer house. <laughs> I'm very glad that I decided to, to become a writer. I think it was in high school, a combination of calculus, BC, and just having trouble with math and not getting it for the first time, and also taking a really wonderful class, English class, where I realized these are the questions that I'm interested in answering, the questions that are posed by literature. And, you know, they can't really be answered by math, or at least not as far as I understand it. And then you went to Brown. Then I went to Brown, studied comp lit and creative writing there, and then bounced around the Middle East for a while and came back and went to the University of Maryland. What prompted you to bounce around from Tunisia and Istanbul and Cairo and all that? I was studying Arabic. I started studying Arabic, I think, summer between my sophomore and junior years and just went with it. Yeah, I fell in love with Cairo and then wanted to continue studying Arabic and ended up in in Tunis and really had an amazing time there and rolled with it. (laughs) There's an essay that you have on your website about your grandparents escaping from Poland to, I think it's Uzbekistan and God knows where, an entire story that could easily be a novel. Uh, Is that sort of in the back of your mind? I've thought about writing their story before. It's really an amazing story because they actually both ended up in Uzbekistan separately coming from different places, and they didn't meet there. They both ended up going from Poland to Uzbekistan and then back to a displaced persons camp, I think in Poland or Germany, where they met. It's an amazing story, and I do think about writing it sometimes and sort of think about how I would write that and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I think it's a story similar to the story we've often been told about Jewish history, and particularly American Jews, 
And as much as I sort of value that history and think that it's really fed who I am as a person, I'm interested in kind of exploring these other parts of Jewish history and world history that are less well-known. Michael David Lucas, going back to the origins of Oracle at Istanbul, so you go to Istanbul and the ideas, you see this little girl, the ideas begin to form. Did you begin writing the book then? I began writing it soon after. It was another one of these things where I wrote down the outline. I think that was a, a bit more of a sort of fleshed out outline. And then right after that was when I started my MFA program. And so I was always kind of writing this novel in that MFA program. In that interview, you talk about there being five drafts. By draft, what exactly do you mean? They were even more drafts. I think there were seven or eight drafts of that and like 10 or 11 of the, the Last Watchmen. By draft, I mean coming to a stopping point and kind of realizing what's wrong with this draft and then going back to the beginning. And in my early drafts, I tend to sort of just throw everything out because I find it's easier to, you know, demolish it and build anew with the new vision than try to cobble things together. Because you got something on paper to look at. Yeah. I don't like incinerate it and destroy my computer like it's right. there, but I do start from scratch. And it's become more and more difficult to start from scratch as progressed in my writing life. And so what I've done for my most recent book, recognizing how difficult it is, but also how important it is, is I've wrote out the first few drafts by hand. The most recent draft of this third book involved transferring it from the journal to the computer and the iteration that happened within that as well. What was the main change for Last Watchman of Cairo? I think the progression was it started out, I wanted to have it be this sort of sweeping thousand-page book with a section for each century that the Jews lived in Cairo, so nine or ten different sections. I soon realized that that was not a book I wanted to write, probably not a book anyone wanted to read, and it was just going to involve too many characters and too many moving pieces. And so as the drafts progressed, I sort of pared it down further and further. I think I went to seven and then five or four or something. And then finally I came to the kind of core of the thing, which was these three stories. What was the fourth, the last one you dumped? That's a good question. I remember that there was a woman in like the 13th or 14th century a woman who was cast out from her family and then sort of taken in by someone else. It was such a long time ago. Um, and there's so many sort of storylines revolving around in there. But I I think I remember that being the, the last one that was, was kicked out. How far do those get? Do you do all the research? Or is it a certain point you're going, I can't find the voice? They were based on people or stories that were in this six-volume history. A lot of the characters were. I only got, you know, maybe to like the 15th century or something like that with the 10-chapter one, and before I realized this isn't happening, <laughs> I, need to, <laughs> right. I need to turn around and, you know, cut bait or whatever. The other characters that these people interact with, particularly the characters in modern day, did they just come spontaneously? Uh, the girl who 
becomes his best friend, his uncle, those characters, the people in the uh, synagogue? I mean, most of them came spontaneously. Aisha, who I think you're talking about, his cousin is was a sort of amalgam of a few different characters. The character of Abdullah, the, the Boab, the guy who is the kind of doorman, I guess, is the right word in, in English, although it's such a different position than a doorman here. I was really fascinated by, by this position. I mean, almost every building in Cairo has someone who basically lives in the foyer and is the kind of watchman of <laughs> sorts, but also, you know, conducts a lot of business transactions for the owner, is the kind of moral guardian of the building in a way. And then sort of, I think some of them will get groceries for people, things like that. I was really fascinated by this position, how it kind of was a mirror or a refraction of the watchman. And I liked that idea. And yeah, I wanted to also show some of the kind of extreme poverty that people are living in Cairo and this incredible, no any way to say it besides entrepreneurialism. People are kind of making do with really difficult circumstances such that Abdullah does. On your webpage, you have a number of essays, but they're mostly from around 2012 to 14. Have you pretty much stopped writing essays? I had a few years when I didn't write so many essays, but I've written a number of them around this book. I just haven't put them on my website yet. <laughs> <laughs> so you're getting back into it. How do you feel about writing nonfiction? I like writing nonfiction a lot. You know, I tend to just go for the fiction because that's sort of the main fire that's that's burning for me. But I really love writing nonfiction. I wrote a piece recently that is sort of in the process of being edited about that meant a lot to me going to Jewish graveyards and abandoned or semi-abandoned synagogues in, in the Muslim world. And just visiting them and the state of their sort of disrepair and what they can sort of tell us about the past and the potential future. Do you speak Arabic fluently I do. at this point? Uh, I wouldn't say I speak it fluently. I think that's a, a lifelong process. <laughs> <laughs> but you can get by. I can get by. Uh, you know, the dialects are all really different, so I can get by some places and not at all other places. But it opens the door to research in ways that most American writers don't have. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I think people appreciate even just, you know, a few words or a sort of basic conversation. Well, that's pretty much true in any country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any interest from Hollywood on either of these novels? No, but I'm open to it. A couple other questions. Have you considered writing short stories? I wrote some short stories when I was in MFA school and tried my hand at it. And I, I love reading short stories, and I think it's a wonderful form. But for whatever reason, I think in novels. When I think of a new story, I almost always think in, in novels. I'm going to actually be writing a, I guess it's a short story for the Berkeley Noir series. And so I'm, I'm pretty excited about, about doing that. Michael David Lucas, you mentioned a third novel, which you're clearly well on the way toward finishing or multiple drafts. I wouldn't say well on the way. I'm well into it. What's the subject insofar as you can tell us? 
That one is a retelling of the biblical book of Esther set in a kind of post-apocalyptic future. So uh, it's a book about diaspora, vengeance, evil, and the possibility to break out of historical cycles. You mentioned that you're interested in and have read a lot of magic realism, fantasy, fabulism. Have you also read a lot of science fiction over the years? Yeah, I you know, it's not something that I grew up reading as many people do, but I came to it a little late in the game, but have been a very eager reader of science fiction <laughs> over the past four or five years. A recent stuff or older? Mostly older stuff. I sort of started with the classic stuff. I'm I'm interested in that borderline between literary and genre. Margaret Atwood, Ursula Le Guin, someone like even Kazuo Ishiguro, some of his stuff. Well, of course, there's apocalyptic stuff like Earth Abides as well. But one of the issues that comes up is that there seems to have been over the past 10 years, particularly film and television, apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic stories to such a degree that you begin wondering what exactly is flowing through the zeitgeist. Do you know? Do you follow what I mean there? Yeah, no, I, I've thought a lot about that. I think that it's a couple things. I think it's, you know, approaching the end of American empire and trying to kind of reckon with that, even if people don't want to necessarily admit that straight up. I think it's climate change sort of involves a lot of possibilities for apocalypse. And then also, I think our technologies have caught up with the sort of 1950s kind of classic science fiction. I don't know. I think we have to kind of imagine new worlds now that we have are basically living in a 1950s science fiction novel. What's the future? How, how are we going to interact with these things? And sadly, it's mostly dystopian. But my book that I'm writing, though, is more speculative. You know, it's in the future. It's in a post-apocalypse, but it's not immediately after the apocalypse. It's maybe two or three hundred years later. So the civilizations have sort of built themselves back up and in a new way. Are you also looking at that borderline of fantasy and reality, too? Yeah, this one, just by virtue of being in the future and in a kind of unnamed place, there's some magic in this one. It's more about human-animal interactions than actual kind of like magicians and things like that. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>